Blog Talk Radio. again today on a beautiful afternoon in New York City. The sun is out, the weather is warm, and the trees are singing, as are many of the humans around them. And uh, that sort of uh, bodes well for tonight's subject, which is nothing short of permaculture, human beings' relationship with nature prompt up, lifted up, elevated to a very high level. And our guest today is Michael Judd. We'll be speaking with him in just a moment. You know, those listeners to A Better World Radio with any kind of regularity or the show on Mondays on Progressive Radio Network, uh, Progressive Film Hour with Mitchell Rabin, know the subjects and the themes that we really keep playing, and that has to do with health, well-being, environment, self-care, sustainability, harmony with nature, and progressive thinking all the way around, holistic thinking everywhere you look, integral thinking up, down, inside, out, vertical, and horizontal. Because with thinking like this, expansive, imaginative thinking, creative thinking, we can develop a world of our own making and our own liking. Uh, When we look around, we see a world that is populated with, my God, it's fun to avoid the newspapers, I'll tell you. It's fun to avoid the television news as well, because there are a lot of people who have decided to make a world short of and lesser than the kind of world we'd really like to inhabit. So here on A Better World, it should be clear by now that while we do talk about some of those more painful subjects when it's important to, we really, really focus on what is going to beget more life, both our own human life and, yeah, nature's own life, Gaia's own life. Because, indeed, we are truly one and the same. We are part of a continuum of life itself. And uh, so that's why these themes of health, well-being, environment, ecology are always, those are the chords that are always being played and strummed here at A Better World. And I'm just always so glad 
to have all of you from really around the world tuning in, listening in, and getting uh, kind of uh, ignited by this kind of fertile dialogue and conversation we have here every week at 6 p.m. And yes, yes, I do know most people do listen in archives. So whatever time it may be in your zone of the world, it's all good. Just tune in and uh, lift the information and run with it. So on that note, I want to uh, give a little introduction to our uh, guest today, who is the author of Edible Landscaping with a Permaculture Twist. We'll be learning about what is permaculture. It's a word that has been in circulation since the 70s, and uh, many people know a whole lot about it, and really a whole lot don't know anything at all. So we're going to be <clears throat> uplifting the uh, those who don't know much at all to the level of those who know a lot. How's that? So we'll be speaking with Michael Judd, who's a delightful gentleman who I had the pleasure of meeting at the Shivananda Yoga Center this past uh, July 4th weekend where uh, we were holding a sustainability and permaculture conference, really. I was the MC and uh, co-ordinator, uh, what do you call it, um, moderator of panels, and we just had a, a very rich group of people there, fertile again, I should say, among whom was Michael Judd. Michael is the founder of Ecologia, Edible and Ecological Landscapes. He grew up between northern England and the Appalachian Mountains of Maryland. His roots have been branched with, what a nice way of putting it, only a permaculturist would put it that way, branched with diverse landscapes and fertile culture. Mix in a decade of running a grassroots nonprofit in rural Latin America, heading up an arid lands research project in the deserts of southeast Spain, an extensive study at the New York Botanical Garden, you end up with an eclectic designer that melds form, function, productivity, all very seamlessly. And that is the author, Michael Judd of Edible Landscaping, who is really one of the foremost pioneers in permaculture in our country. So, Michael Judd, welcome to A Better World. Oh, it's wonderful to be here, Mitchell. Thanks for the invite. Absolutely, absolutely. I think well of your work, and I really wanted to highlight it here, feature it here, Michael, for our audience. We did have you on the other uh, radio show talking about, was it dirt? No, no, it wasn't dirt. But you would have been great on that roundtable with Paul Stamets and Bill Logan and uh, Bill Benenson, who was the uh, filmmaker. But uh, what what was the show that we had you on? It was on, on the, the urban. Yeah, it was the oh, urban yes, garden. Urban roots. The yeah. the life of growing growing food and gardens in urban Detroit, and the way that is utterly transforming people's lives and the city itself. That's right. You were a wonderful contributor to that. So, Michael, how is it, first of all, if you would tell us that how you got into permaculture? Before I had learned about permaculture, I'd had the good fortune to live uh, with some of the last of the of the Mayans, uh, the Lacandon Mayans, uh, which 
which is the last of the tribe living in the stretch of jungle between southern Mexico and Guatemala. And I had gone into the jungle um, to live with one of these one of these remaining communities uh, to help design a compost toilet. And while I was there and why I was getting to build this with the community, I was learning uh, how to harvest from their forest and got to realize that they were managing their forests for their food, for their fibers, their fodders, their medicines, their crafts. Uh, that it was actually this intricate agricultural system, but to me, or to most of us looking at it, it just looked like a regular rainforest. But they'd lived there for centuries and centuries uh, without using it up. So I was fascinated uh, at this, this sort of perennial agriculture and community use of it. And I um, brought that back to the States and landed in a permaculture community without really knowing what that was. Uh-huh. Uh, down in North Carolina, outside of Asheville, there's a permaculture community yeah. there that's being designed. Oh, what is that called, that community? Earth Haven. Earth Haven, yeah. Earth Haven, yeah. Earth Haven, it's called earthhaven.org. Uh, and it is unique in the sense that it's 300-plus acres and being designed to house, you know, over 120 people. Uh, and yet, again, be regenerative in the sense that, you know, they can really increase the productivity and increase the abundance of that land uh, after living on it in a time, which is not what we usually see with humans' habitat. These days, a landscape, it gets gets denuded, you know, it gets degraded. Uh, so, So the intention of this permaculture community, permaculture in general, is to regenerate landscapes, you know, sort of create these these um, human-centered ecologies uh, yes. that have all these benefits for, you know, for everything and the human. Yeah. Yep. So is that the idea to take land that may not be uh, being used for food but is sort of near the habitat, near the home, of humans, and it can be transformed into, as you put it in the name of your book, edible landscape? Yeah, really permaculture can be applied to almost any landscape, you know, except for maybe the, you know, the poles. Uh, And in fact, permaculture has been used to great success in the deserts, in the areas of the world that are fast moving I saw that in your book. I love it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Jeff Lawton is uh, a real um, leader in the permaculture movement right now, and he is an Australian. And he's got some great videos out there, great YouTube videos, and a great site. Yes. Uh, probably under his name, Jeff Lawton. Uh, one wonderful video to watch, uh, which really kind of brings together a lot of permaculture understanding and principle, is called Greening the Desert. And uh, it's five minutes long, and it's it's an older video. It's Jeff Lawton just simply showing how, by doing earthworks and shaping the landscape and doing mulch and, and perennial plantings, you can regenerate a space that, that, that was even as barren as a salted desert. Uh, so hmm. fascinating what, there. What is really, earthworks, Michael? Earthworks are just that, you know, working and moving earth usually, either digging it yourself or if there's machinery available, uh, shaping the earth, you know, creating texture on the landscape. You know, when you when you begin to move and shape the earth, you have the opportunity 
to capture and hold and sink water, to block wind, to create, um, you know, little micro habitats. You know, you create uh, niches, so to say. So yeah. really, you want a curvaceous, textured landscape. Um, it creates a lot of benefits. So in a desert, I mean, since you brought it up, and I think it happens to be really good because <laughs> there is very much an, a notion of desertification taking place in the world, and some of it is actually way closer to home than any of us would care to realize uh, what with the droughts, dramatic droughts occurring in California and in Arizona and in Texas and in Colorado, and you could say a lot of states in the United States of America are becoming, it's too much to say desertified, but it's surely heading in that direction. And Southern California and Arizona have always been deserts, except they happen to have gotten, um, uh, you know, uh, developed. But in reality, they're deserts. So what, if you have sand... How do you turn sand then, maybe even flat sand like in Arizona, how do you do the earthworks to uh, cultivate then uh, a rain sink, you called it, and uh, do this work? Right. Well, generally speaking, most arid areas of the world, when we say desert, um, we, our minds do go to the sand dunes in the movies, uh, but those are those are yeah. a minority uh, of, of what is is desert and dry arid lands. Uh, maybe mm-hmm. arid lands is a better description. Um, you know, does have some sort of uh, rock or soil to work with and to shape um, and to absorb water. Um, but basically, when you're doing an earthwork, a lot of time we call uh, these swales. So swales uh, on contour mean that we are digging a basin, digging out a basin and putting that soil on the downhill side and putting that perpendicular to the slope. So you've created this basin in this berm, and as the water comes down slope and it falls into the basin, it stops since it's on contour, means it's level, it stops and it sinks in, and then it gets to be held in the water table as compared to what usually happens is, is water comes down quickly and it sheets off and it runs and it's, oh, and it's not held. Okay, so you're the conserving the water that's falling in a hole, yeah. in short. Okay. Basically, yes, yeah, you can stretch Basically. that hole I mean, out. I mean, pardon in, the, in, the crudeness of that, <laughs> but, yeah, well, that's the well, basic you know, idea. That, that's, that's basically what a rain garden is. A rain garden is yes. basically a hole. It's a depression in the earth yes. uh, that that usually has been um, added with sand and maybe you know really good organic matter to make it a fast draining soil. Uh, I've just been working all day creating a rain garden, uh, and basically it is. It's this excavation creating a hole and then putting in something that's fast draining, a mixture. So when water comes across it, boom, it stops, it sinks, and you're holding it. Uh, you're conserving it in the soil. Now, regardless of if you're in a dry area or not, I'm in Maryland, and we have more than enough rain, especially this year, but we have a lot of pollution issues. We have a lot of runoff. That All that water coming down and falling on our roofs and our driveways and our lawns is running off and into our watersheds, eventually into Chesapeake Bay here. Uh, and this is an issue that, that's happening everywhere. Um, and and so is the runoff, you're saying the runoff is polluted? Yes, absolutely, 
Um, you know, it's guaranteed, you know, coming off a roof, almost all roofs uh, are putting off chemicals, you know, on a hot day like today. Okay. Uh, oh, they're off gassing. Yeah. They're off gassing, but, you know, they're, when the when the rain hits it, it's going to pull out some chemicals. And it's going to come down yes, the gutter and it's sure. going to fly across your, your yard and it's going to go yeah. down into the drain and it's going to go out to the rivers. So, uh, and that depends know, on what your roof is actually made of, what materials, correct? There are potential true. roofs that are rather uh, more eco-friendly. There are. There are. But generally speaking, suburbia these days um, is made of asphalt and other types of, you know, treated uh, products. So generally speaking, I mean, yes, ideally, yes, we're creating living roofs where we're absorbing it and planting it and really holding it. It's the same concept. Again, we're holding the water. We're conserving it uh, on the landscape. So as this water is rushing down, it could just be from your driveway. So you're driving a car. It's, you know, it's leaking some fluids. You know, water hits that. It's going to run down. Um, a lot yes. of folks use use you know herbicides and pesticides and fertilizers on their lawn. So when it rains, it's yes. just sheeting off. So by creating yes. swales, by creating rain gardens, we give that water an opportunity to stop and sink in and filter. And for the bacteria and the fungi in the soil and in the organic matter of these swales and these rain gardens, an opportunity to break those down and cleanse them before water is passed onward into our watershed. So part of what I'm getting at is it's not just for arid lands. Uh, You know, this design, these earthworks, these water harvesting techniques on the landscape uh, have benefit regardless of where they are. It's a a big majority of uh, the work I do here. Uh, is uh-huh. that rainwater harvesting um, for many reasons, for the ecological and for, you know, growing your own food. So they really dovetail together. There's In permaculture, yes. what we call is multiple, uh, you know, functions, stacking functions with what you do. So you're creating sort of a, a natural ecology of activity. Yes, 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 yes. Could you... Go into. I want to go deep like this and discuss rain gardens and all of the other wonderful points you bring up in your book, Edible Landscaping, with a permaculture twist. But first, I'd like to go into Michael the a quick history, a thumbnail history of uh, of permaculture and the definition that you generally give it and the principles behind it. It began in okay. Australia. Could you just give us a began, thumbnail? It began of it in Australia. Actually, actually in Tasmania, um, back in '79, uh, a previous woodsman, come professor named Bill Mollison, uh, and his one of his students uh, began outlining uh, what has become known as uh, two books. One is the Intro to Permaculture a really nice, small, uh, manageable book. And then what we call the Big Black Book is the Permaculture mm-hmm. Manual. It's a phenomenal book uh, and covers you know, all these different habitats in the world uh, and how to apply permaculture design. Uh, now, basically, permaculture design is looking at um, the landscape and communities as a whole. So how do we create um, human-centered ecosystems? So not not it, we tend to these days focus on just gardening 
or just you know sustainable forestry uh, or just alternative energy. What permaculture mm-hmm. does is it takes all of these you know sort of sustainable regenerative fields and puts them together in a design so that you have to mm. consider them all at the same time when you're looking at the landscape. So the home, the house you build has to be in relation to, you know, how the water and the wind are moving on the landscape. You know, how does it relate to the other aspects you're designing? It doesn't sit separately. So natural ecologies have all these different functions happening at one time to support a greater whole. And so it's taking that observation of natural ecological systems and saying, okay, now how do we imitate that pattern and create the needs for us as humans and stimulate the environment around us? So in a nutshell, it is a design. It's a very adaptable design. So you take principles and concepts, and you can apply them in inner cities, you know, suburbia, rural, you know, arid lands, entire watersheds. I mean, one of the beauties of permaculture is its flexibility um, and, yes. and, and its ability to be recreated. And it has been in many ways. The movement has flourished and grown, and people are using it in different ways. You know, some people add spiritual elements to it. You know, they add in that sort of inner ecology um, and community. Others treat it yes. as a very dry, a dry science. And it's like, okay, look, we're just going to be doing maps and drawing this and, you know, kick the woo-woo out. Um, But in the end, the the, the concepts of the design still still links together in the sense that we're trying to... It kind of reminds me of, you could almost say, a feng shui of a landscape. Um, Mm. And that's a little redundant, quite honestly, and I, I have to admit it, because feng shui means wind, water in Chinese, of course, and uh, it's also the art of placement initially on the landscape of a property, a house, I mean, on a landscape, a dwelling on a landscape. So it actually in itself does include what could be notions of permaculture, but permaculture is um, a slightly more specified, you know, I guess branding or type of focus on the well, human landscape relationship. Yes, but I like your analogy there with feng shui. I, you know, if you align yourself within the energies that exist, you know, yes. uh, it's the same idea, you know, it, with permaculture. If you can design your landscape to fit within the ecology around us, within the energies that exist, you know, within the flow of water and energy and sun and wind, and slope and and just community and access. If we place our design within those flows, they'll be successful. They'll they'll pretty much be fed by those systems that are already there. So we're Mm -hmm. observing that and taking advantage of that and designing into that so that it is fed naturally and thrives without us continually putting input into it. If you design something well, it will thrive on its own. In permaculture, you know, the idea is that you initially put in quite a bit of thought and design and and infrastructure. You do a little bit of install, and then once you've done your installation, if you've done it right, it'll function for itself. You're done. You know, it will thrive 
you know, you have more time than in your life to, you know, spend with your children, do yoga, whatever your thing is, because your systems are now being successful because they're in the flow. Yes. You know, I want to share with you, if I may, uh, my initial introduction to permaculture, Michael, which happened in around 1990. And uh, I knew a woman who was involved in it and was somehow involved with the Museum of Natural History, and there was an event that took place there of, uh, I think it was a, a film on permaculture being used in a certain area of Nepal. And a number of people signed up to go there to educate the local people who were, if I'm not mistaken, seriously malnourished and did not have enough food to sustain. And the permaculturists came in and looked at their habitat, which was really in the woods for all intents and purposes, but somehow came up with a design which placed uh, certain plants in certain areas, and you're very, very familiar with this, in a way that so the soil was, for each of the growths, was complementary. So if there was more nitrogen in one and calcium in another than they needed to interact they would plant these things next to each other, and they would also yield food, nuts and berries and fruits. And so before you know, and they, and they, of course, configured whatever little water was there in such a way that all of the uh, plants near the habitat were getting uh, their fair share of water. So it was this yeah. masterful architecture that of elements that actually were already there that were just rearranged in this very interesting, you know, hierarchy slash architecture that allowed the area to flourish. I don't know if they brought in anything novel. I don't know, except for their ideas and design. I think that all of the elements were there. Does that sound like a permacultural kind of thing? That sounds like a food It's utterly brilliant. Yes, that's, that sounds a, like that's what, what we call a food, a food forest or edible, you know, forest garden uh, is yeah. is a mainstay of permaculture and stands on its own as well. And is just as you explained, you know, you're creating what we call guilds. Uh, they're basically companion planting that help fill the needs of your main food producers. So let's let's bring that home, so to say and you want to plant a fruit tree in your front yard. Now, instead of just going out there and digging a hole and sticking it in there in the middle of the grass uh, and let it fend for itself, the idea is, okay, let's plant this tree with its needs. You know, let's design this so that it's going to get what it needs so we're not having to run out there and do it all the time. Mm-hmm. So we create this little ecology around it. So you go out and you plant your fruit tree, and you create this large mulch area usually with what we call sheet mulch, which is layers. Some people call it lasagna gardening. And Mm -hmm. you're basically putting out different layers of organic matter, oftentimes newspaper and cardboard are included in it uh, to help, you know, kill back grass and weeds underneath. And it brings up worms and turns into soil as well. So you're creating this layered mulch. You're planting your tree in the middle of it. And then around it, you're planting things that are going to fix nitrogen Usually things in the pea family are used to fix nitrogen. Mm-hmm. And then you're going to want to plant something that's going to bring in pollinators, something like echinacea. 
and it's going to help benefit the pollination of your tree, your fruit. Then you're going to plant something that's also going to bring in beneficial insects, predator insects that will help balance the insect ecology for your tree, something like yarrow, with a really nice architecture to it. And then you're also going to want to bring in uh, some kind of mulch plant, something that is going to continue the mulch cycle for you so that you're not bringing it in all the time. Uh, one of my favorites for this is comfrey. Comfrey has a very deep root, which pulls up minerals from the subsoil into its leaves so that when you come and you can cut and drop it three, four times over a growing season, and you're bringing up those minerals and leaving them on the topsoil for the tree to feed from. So you basically created this little ecology for that tree to be supported as compared to just sticking it out there on its own. Um, and then you can combine that by doing a swale on contour like we mentioned. You could plant that tree on that raised berm so that it is also getting that water runoff from your roof and from your yard and your landscape. So again, you're, you're pumping that system naturally. And once you've designed and put this in place, and it's not that much, you know, it could be just something that you designed 15 feet down from your downspout of your house. You're going to do a little smiley face swale on that. You're going to plant your fruit tree, and then around that, on the on the berm, go ahead and put in some other perennial companions. And don't worry too much if you don't remember which ones I've mentioned or are the right ones. Really just putting in, you know, perennial plants will just bring in habitat. It will bring in beneficial insects. It will help just bring in more balance. Um, so, yes, yeah. what you described very articulately in Nepal is uh, a food forest design, and it is based, like permaculture is, in an observation of natural systems. So how does a natural forest function? When you look at a healthy forest, it's very busy. You know, there's all these layers. There's vines and there's ground covers and bushes and mid-story and overstory trees all growing together very intimately and yet being very successful you know, really creating a lot of biomass. And if we look at that and say, wow, that's very different than our concept of agriculture, which is rows, plant space so far, rows so far apart, and our idea of competition. Uh, but then we look at this and we're like, wow, that's really working well. How do we sort of observe that, uh, take that pattern and apply it to our human needs? And yes. that's what we just described. You know, put your fruit tree, your nut tree, you know, your medicinals out there. You know, how do we put these together? How do we observe that and use it for creating our beneficial habitat? Mm-hmm. It's so interesting. I, I, I want to let everybody know that you are listening to A Better World with Mitchell J. Rabin, and uh, we're on every Wednesday at 6 p.m., and of of course, you can listen in archive anytime, even at 3 a.m. if that suits you. And today's show is dedicated to the subject of permaculture, and we're speaking about that with Michael Judd, the author of Edible Landscaping with a Permaculture Twist, How to Have Your Yard and Eat It Too. <laughs> I love it. Michael, you bring such a beautiful, light touch to the subject, and uh, your book is just beautiful. I love the way you lay it out. It's got humor in it, and it, uh, at the beginning, of course, you say, this book is not to be kept clean. It's supposed to be dog-eared and earmarked and used with dirt 
in the soil itself, reading it as you plant your plants. I love it. It's uh, it's a real hands-on and how-to book. And uh, honestly, I just think the whole underlying notion of permaculture is going to becoming increasingly important as time goes on because, well, we see what's going on with water on our planet. We see what's going on with food sources that have been so industrialized and chemicalized and GMO'd, and while there are major battles being played out politically about all of these, uh, still, they they have gained the upper hand uh, across the board. And the idea of being able to return to uh, local growing, i.e., in one's own backyard and front yard in this case, you know, I think is going to become a seminal piece of our future. And comments? Yes. Yes, yes, and yes, huh? Sorry. Yeah, it it can only grow in importance. Uh, It's it's a tool um, that, that is, like I said, adaptable to the myriad of changes that we're experiencing and going to experience. It's not rigid. Uh, It's not set in any one way. Uh, It can be used as things change to those changes. Uh, It's not dogmatic. Uh, It does not have to uh, stick with any one format, and I think that's what's important. And it's one of a host of things we're going to need you know, as times, you know, become more challenging. Uh, and, and we need flexibility in design uh, and, and more thoughtful design, you know, design that really is considering, you know, future generations. Um, and, and we can look back, we can look back to how many of the indigenous peoples of of our country, of the United States um, and the Americas, you know, use the landscape and by observing and learning from them, we, I think we can bring back um, a health and an abundance uh, to, mm-hmm. to our, you know, to our landscape and to our communities. Um, and I think it's, it's, it's going to take a while to get there. We might fall off the cliff first, but uh, yeah. You know, the, it, there's a, there's a lot there for us to learn from, and and you know, so much of it is just from observation. You know, we don't necessarily need to have a, a guru or you know a person uh, to teach these things to us. Uh, if we just begin to observe and watch and see how things in, in nature are working, we'll get the best inspiration we can get and the most successful designs for the change, uh, you know, the resilience in nature is is phenomenal. And if we focus yeah. on that and, and, and then think, okay, well, look how that's doing it there, how can I apply that, that pattern of understanding, you know, what we call sometimes biomimicry? You know, how mm-hmm. do we observe that? And then how do we now overlap that to our situation, to our habitat, to our reality? And yes. we'll have much more success when we use those models. Yes. Uh, yeah. Will you talk a little bit about biomimicry? Another favorite subject of mine. You're you're hitting all the points. Well, I'm getting I'm ticklish. Not, I, <laughs> I've not I've not particularly studied or read on on you know the subject of biomimicry other than what I've just explained in the sense that uh, observing um, you know how 
how there are natural patterns around us all the time, uh, from yeah. the microscopic, you know, from looking at, you know, the patterns on a turtle shell, uh, you know, to, you know, looking at dendritic patterns of roots and, you know, how water moves on the landscape. You know, those kind of patterns are core part of permaculture. And I think one of the influences for permaculture was a book called Pattern Language. And this book delves into uh, the understanding of using patterns. Who is it by? Oh, I knew you were going to ask me that, and and I know, but... (laughs) It's just it will pop out here in a little bit. I'll figure it okay, out. Okay, fine. Anyone listening, uh, but, please weigh it, in. Yeah, yeah it'll pop ahead. out. Uh, sure. Wonderful. And it it goes into observing and talking about it and applying it to our you know our architectural our human architecture and landscapes and communities. Um, oh, so, Christopher Alexander. Christopher Alexander, who I have read. I didn't recognize the name of that book. Please pardon my ignorance. But uh, he is one of the awesome commentators and theorists on on landscaping and the relationship of man to nature. Truly one of the leading thinkers. And and I think a a big influence um, in permaculture as well. You know, when... When I first got into permaculture and people were talking about patterns, you know, it didn't really click for me what they were talking about. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think over over time, you know, by doing simple projects, you know, by you know, imitating a good example is is Hugel culture. Now, Hugel culture is an ancient practice with a uh, you know a modern word, a Germanic word that basically means wood covered with soil. Now, if we if we look back or if we observe a natural healthy forest again, it'll look lumpy. It'll have all these humps and 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 dips in it, and those are old trees that have fallen, and over the seasons have been covered with leaves and are slowly turning back into the soil. Mm-hmm. So that's a pattern, you know. That quite that's just simply a pattern. There's a natural pattern occurring. So how do we observe that on our landscape? So we have all this wood coming off our landscapes. Not everyone's, but certainly around here. We have a lot of wood. And most people are putting it on their curb to be picked up and taken to the dump. You know, they're getting it, they're, they're removing it from their land. Whereas that's a resource. And if we imitate that natural pattern by covering them with soil and being patient, letting some seasons pass, that that wood in there will break down and create amazing fertility and moisture for whatever we would like to plant in it. So patterns can be quite simple. They don't have to be this complex understanding. And if you go and read Christopher's Alexander book, you might get overwhelmed. It's a Uh, bit complex, no question about it. And following that same notion is a quote from inside your book that I just giggled at when I came across it under fungi or I should say fun guy, and uh, it is the uh, the uh, founder, I think, of Field and Forest, who you quote as saying, proud to be part of this rotting world <laughs> in respect to the use of and the role of fungus in nature. <laughs> that yes. was great. That was great. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And, 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 and what and you're talking about, even with the Hugo culture, 
is, you know, it's part and parcel of the rotting process and uh, mycelium. Maybe talk about that a little bit as well. Oh, I would love to talk about mycelium and fungi. Uh, it Good. is, you know, as Paul Stamets has pointed out, you know, a keystone sure. Who we've had on the show a couple of times, yeah. Which is fantastic. He's one of my heroes. Great. He's a great um, guy, sure. And and I'll put a plug in for his TED Talk. It is phenomenal. If you, yeah. you can go to YouTube and plug his name in, Paul Stamets. Right. Uh, and give S-T-A-M-E-T-S. Yes. And if you give 18 minutes of your life listening to his, his talk, you <laughs> will be very rewarded uh, in understanding yeah. and seeing the magic and in, in the reach that mushrooms, that fungi have yeah. in our yeah. world. And we would not exist without them. And understanding that relationship with fungi is really one of the keys to our continued existence. And I think the more we understand that, the more we will honor and work with fungi. And, and yes, fungi are uh, the key ingredient in breaking down soil. You know, when a tree dies, the first decomposers on the scene are the fungi, the fungus. And they're beginning the process of turning that into soil. So we can interact with that. And Hubel culture, that covering wood with soil I'd mentioned, mm-hmm. is that's what you're doing. As soon as you allow wood to be moist, to stay shaded, fungi are going to move in and start that process and begin, you know, creating fertile soil. So there's many ways we can the work with fungi. The entire formation of soil is just one of the most phenomenal things, you know, uh, and I also want to do a, uh, a shout out, so to speak, to the makers of dirt. First, the book by Bill Logan. Are you familiar with it? Yes, I oh, am. Yeah. Dirt. I mean, I just loved it. And then Bill Benenson, as I mentioned before, made a film of it. In fact, we're going to have him on a better world radio too. Uh, and, uh, Bill Logan is right here in Brooklyn, in New York City, and does a lot with landscaping across the city in different ways. Uh, But, you know, the importance of dirt has just been so forgotten when, in fact, it's the thing around which and about which wars are fought. This is what it is. It's, you know, he says, who cares about the word soil? Go for dirt, man. (laughs) It's way more fun to say. I like that point of view. But um you know, this notion that you're that you're speaking of 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 the earthworms and the wood rotting and fungi and mycelium running, the name of Paul's Paul Simmons' book, you know, uh, also just to say you used the word dendritic before, which was wonderful and I'm thinking of course that a root system of a tree underground is very much similar to the dendritic system of brain matter in our skull. Yes. Right? Yes. Yes. That's and, how and, and, yeah. rooted, no pun intended, we are in the soil. I'd like to ask you another question because along this very same idea of making soil uh, earthworks, I now understand it to be as well. Um, we use things as cow dung and horse dung. I'm just wondering, and in other words, using whatever resources, rather than removing things that are on the, on, on the ground because we think that they're in the way and then hauling them off to another locale, um, I wonder, 
would human waste, as we call it, be also potentially, except for that it's gotten so contaminated based on the foods we eat and all sorts of things, but would it not also, if things were a little purer, um, be playing a role just as we use horse and cow dung to uh, increase the fertility of the soil? Absolutely. Absolutely. And there's a great book out there called Humanure uh, by Joe. Yeah, it's a great book. Uh, Full of humor, but really hitting the mark with, you know, how do we use this amazing resource? Uh, It's by Joe, Joe Jenkins. And absolutely, absolutely, in many different ways, okay. whatever your comfort level is, you know, there's even these really nice, posh, uh, manufactured models these days that have fans and, you know, they, there's no odor and it creates this perfect compost when you're done. You know, it can be used yes. out there around your fruit trees, uh, you know, a very benign. Basically, if you are composting it to a certain heat, a certain temperature, uh, mm-hmm. You are assuring that it is then a safe material to to use, and absolutely, we mm-hmm. should be using it. Uh, and the opposite is, in a sense, it's weird we that we're pulling do. it out. We're pulling it out of the ecosystem. Absolutely, and and I, we sort of are operating in a linear way, where if you yeah. imagine a straight line. You know, raw materials are coming in, uh, they're coming through us or our home, and then they're continuing out into, you know, the garbage. Instead, yeah, right. take that straight linear line and curve it and create a circle how we can, you know, make sure that we're in a cycle where we feed back what we are receiving. Yeah. You know, yeah. humanure is a critical part of that cycle. You know, we cannot keep consuming and taking without giving back to it. We are yes. going to run out of materials. So uh, yes. the humanure exactly. aspect, is, it, it, you know, uh, in Joe Jenkins' book, he talks about how in China, uh, along some of the rural stretches of highways, farmers will build these elaborate, beautiful, temple-like compost toilets along the side of the highway. And they're, mm. they're in competition. They're vying for... Your humanure. They're like they want you to stop and be comfortable, enjoy oh yourself, and please, right. please leave us your valuable humanure. And they really oh understand and, and yeah. value that. So, uh, really, as a culture, we've we've got to get that right. Uh, and just imagine, imagine New York City, and maybe this has already happened after four days of no flushing toilets. Yeah. No water. No, so electricity is gone for more than three or four days. Toilets aren't flushing. I mean, what a nightmare. I'm, and and, and exactly. something that's avoidable if we had a system. And, of course, you need a system for this. Uh, but what a regenerative system that would be. Yes, exactly. Exactly. No, I'm glad I'm, I'm on the path of what you your – what? <laughs> Excuse me. We cover the gamut here, you know, human. Yeah, right. That. Exactly. Well, yeah. since you mentioned the Chinese and their uh, their temples, <laughs> uh, that kind of temple, you know, it's also true that e- that urine has certain um, constituent um, elements that are used in uh, the highest end perfume on the shelves of Bloomingdale's 
and Saks Fifth Avenue. And a lot of the raw material is called from urinals in Beijing and the other leading cities across China. What? Because they, yeah, <laughs> pretty wild, huh? Yes, yes. Yeah, pretty I've been to some of the toilets. Wild. I've been to Beijing. I've been to the community toilets, and it, it does not smell very attractive, no. No, 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 exactly. They don't. I, I wasn't thinking about smell at that moment. But after the, I'm talking about the urine. Um, it's harvested, basically. It's harvested. And uh, I, I came across this in a book uh, about um, the use of urine as nutrition. What is the name of the old, the old ancient practice of uh, drinking it? Yes, exactly. There is, there is a, there is a, it's quite, it's quite alive. There's definitely people. Urinotherapy, yeah, exactly. Yeah, urine therapy, drinking it. But, you know, for, you know, landscape use, it is pure urea. It is pure nitrogen. You know, what farmers are going out and buying as nitrogen is urea. And urine is pure in that form, uh, very strong to where you need to dilute it uh, to use around your plants. So, it, as you're pointing out, it has a lot of uh, a lot of benefits, uh, and and yet, what are we doing? You know, we're we're peeing into we're uh, you know, our, fresh the water, our, our, our fresh water supply, um, yeah. whereas you know we could turn that into a cycle and into a use, and that's one of the things you could actually use on a, on a small scale. You know, suburban, urban. You know, you can dilute, use your pee and dilute it about ten to one with water. And use it on your house plants. Use it on your plants outside. It's not going to mm. smell at that rate. And right. you, know, you can begin to feed your plants. Um, and, and what you say? The urea, the urea helps to um, uh, stimulate nitrogen. Or what was that? It is. It is nitrogen. So it, it is, is definitely going to make your plants very happy. Yes, you will. You wow. will see a marked difference. Your your house on the block really? is going to be a shining example of, of you know <laughs> landscape you get urine that, therapy. Folks, you get that? Start <laughs> using your pee. <laughs> Don't yeah. wash it away. <laughs> yeah, you can put a little sign out on your on your lawn. This this lawn is that fertilized is by wild. Have you come across, Michael, any of the deleterious effects of uh, GMOs in the uh, in the projects that you've been working on with permaculture, either in terms of seeds or effect on yeah. soil or water? Have you? Well, G- what, what do you GMOs, come across, if anything? GMOs GMOs are still playing themselves out for long term effects. Um, but a lot of the sterilized seeds and things Monsanto are working on, uh, you know, these are having immediate effects. Uh, in, in my time living in Latin America, very immediate in that farmers who traditionally saved their seeds and had a long history of genetic diversity in those seeds uh, have yes. been encouraged to buy, you know, these Monsanto seeds uh, that are sterile. So, meaning that they yeah. will, they have to plant them. So they plant corn, sterile corn, and okay. it doesn't go, it doesn't produce a seed that can be planted again. So you have to right. go back and keep Terminator buying. Terminator seed, old. as they call it. Yeah, yeah. And that's the whole idea. So you keep going back and you keep buying, and you, and then you very quickly have lost the seed genetics that you had 
And I've seen a lot of, you know, nutritional and landscape devastation due to that uh, throughout Latin America. But GMOs, yeah. I think we're still waiting to see, uh, you know, and maybe we are seeing it in ways we don't, you know, quite uh, identify yet uh, in mm-hmm. some of the dysfunctions and health and things we're seeing around us. I think it's collective. You know, I don't think it's any one thing that's uh, creating a lot of the challenges that we're, we're, we're seeing in our culture and our children. You know, it's this collective effect of GMOs, of all these vaccines, you know, of all the, yeah. you know, high fructose, you know, syrup and, you know, just syrup, the, right. you know, the, 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 the lack of good nutrition in our food and, and just air pollution, you know, it's collective. Um, yes. Yeah. Yes. It's a whole picture. And uh, not to mention the EF up, the EMFs and the monitors and, you know, the computerized everything. And none of that goes to say that monitors aren't useful with computers. We love them. But, my God, what about something called balance, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, getting out of the landscape and, and, and getting, you know, just starting a small project. And that's what my book is about is, is making, you know, this approachable and fun, uh, not to be overwhelmed by, oh, I have to understand this and I have to have all these concepts together before I begin doing something on my landscape. No, uh, pick a simple, fun project and go out and start interacting with your landscape and it will guide you, it will help to heal you, it will teach you. Uh, it, it will be a blessing no matter what. And I think people think they need to have an understanding before they go out there. And really yeah, the understanding is dirty. gained. Yeah, yeah, the understanding is gained as you get your hands dirty. You know, pick up right. a no, simple just guy. Just do it. Just do just it. Just do it. <laughs> right, right, right. I'm all about Talk about, um, before I let you go, I'd love to hear you just share a little bit about uh, edib- uh, edible ovens. <laughs> Earthen ovens. <laughs> Yes, and then tell us a little are, bit about ecologia. Right, earthen ovens are a, an age-old tradition around the world, and it's basically building your your ovens out of earth. If you have it, sand and some kind of organic matter, whether that's usually chopped straw or something. And instead of what we traditionally see, which is bricks, we usually see a pizza oven or something made out of brick. Uh, what mm-hmm. we are doing is free-forming that shape, but we are also adding in insulative layers, layers that are thick and rich with straw uh, or some other type of material like that that helps insulate the heat. If you have a brick oven and you fire it, that heat goes right out. It flies right out of the brick. So you're oh, constantly feeding it. Yes, you're, yeah. you're giving a lot of energy into it, your own, you know, more wood, whereas these earthen cob ovens can be very insulative. And so when you, the idea is that you have a fire in there for, you know, depending on the size, about an hour and a half. And then if you're going to make pizza, you would just push those coals as it dies down a bit to the to the back in sort of a half moon. And then you would just slide your pizzas in and out. Within two minutes, those pizzas are cooked, and they are delicious. For two they are, Oh, really? two minutes. They're flat. Even sometimes quicker when the oven's really hot. I mean, and it, it, is, it is a party. Uh, and there's something yeah. about fire, the food, and these earthen ovens that draws people to them. They're a real center for activity. Wow. Uh, we uh, all yeah, it's like a, no matter. the hearth. It's the hearth. Yeah. Exactly. Which, it is. of course, has the word heart, heart embedded. Yeah. 
Yes, and it's true. It, right. it really brings community yeah. together. We we always have one wherever we live. And the last chapter of my book is dedicated to how do you build one of these, and they are fun and simple. That's the outer layer. But, if you have straw on the inside, what's covering and protecting well, the straw from the fire? Well, your first layer is this almost the same mix as you would to make bricks. It's just uh, clay, subsoil, and sand. So there's no organic matter in your first layer, which is about four inches. So what we do is we get damp sand and we create a like an egg shape. And that is the that's the form that we're gonna work around. So we build these layers around that sand form. So the first one is four inches and it's this sand and soil mix. And then the next layer is a very organic rich layer. So we'll we'll make a mud slurry. We'll take mud and water and make like a milkshake. And we'll oh. dunk we'll dunk our straw in it and let it soak it up and then we'll pack that. And that'll become like oh. sort of this honeycomb of straw. And that's your insulative layer. And then the final layer is going to be sort of your plaster, you know, which can yeah. be again your 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 clay soil, your sand and finely chopped uh organic matter straw. And you cover it with that. And, and then you pull the sand out. That sand, that's just your form. You know, it's kind of like a balloon for, you know, making a pinata. You're just yes. going to pull it out then. And then you let it dry and you're ready to go. It's so much fun. I mean, you're playing with mud. You know, it's like you've been given a license to be a kid again. And, and, yeah, and, right. And boot, you, yeah, you get this wonderful... Uh, Pizza. Sort of. <laughs> et, yeah, we use edible architecture too. On sure. That's very drawing, exactly. attractive, and interesting. And and you can cook anything that you would in a conventional oven in this oven, but it will taste ten times better. Makes the best yeah. bread. You can put birds in there, and you can as the heat diminishes, you can do different things. You can do cookies, um, and you know, you, and then it, it, the last bit of heat, you know, you can dry fruits in it. It really becomes this super useful and fun uh, part of your landscape. So I, I recommend, yeah. even if it's just a small little throw together in a weekend one, uh, to go uh -huh. for it because they are fun. And yeah, and I, and I, I detail how to do it in my book. Um, yeah. All the chapters, all the subjects in my book are how to. So how do you go out in the landscape and begin doing these fun, uh, productive um, projects? Yes, yeah. right. And then, and, and, well, and then you asked about e ecologia. I did ecologia. Yeah, tell us a little ecologia, bit about what that is. A, that's a Portuguese word for ecology, and mm -hmm. you know, sort of the, the tagline with it is edible and ecological landscapes. Yeah. And it's a business I started here in Maryland, the D.C. Baltimore area, uh, when I moved back from Latin America about four years ago. And mm -hmm. really made a translation of of what I'd learned living with the Mayans and living in rural Latin America, working with food forests and understanding, you know, how to work with water and all these permaculture mm -hmm. practices and patterns. And I brought them back here to suburbia. And I'm like, okay, how do I adapt these so that it is, uh, you know, attractive and functional to where I am? You know, where are people ready yes. to meet this idea and, and 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 really accept it and have it accepted by their neighborhood, their HOAs, um, you know, all of these important things to us culturally here. 
Yes. And so the business has really taken the permaculture ideas, these functional landscapes, and made them beautiful, really made them sexy. I mean, really, what we've done, really amazing designs for high-end restaurants, um, beautiful yards, um, you know, front yards, you know, things that are very productive yet very attractive. And, and really that's where yeah. people are ready. A lot of people are ready. You know, and I think permaculture sometimes can get a bit of a, a ratty image if it's not done with a little bit of aesthetics in mind. And then it depends where you yeah. are. If you're, if you're out in the homestead and you're out in the country, then, you know, that's fine. Imitate your, your zone. If you're in suburbia where majority of people are living these days, you know, adapt it and make it attractive. Make it so people really want to interact with it and actually do it because that's the bottom line. We need to see this change in the landscape. We need to see, you know, this runoff we spoke about. We need to see this captured and harvested and and cleansed here and now. Um, and how do we do that? You know, how do we put our own ideas aside a bit and meet people where they are and and and, and make it so that uh, they enjoy it and and yeah, love it. That is wonderful. That is wonderful. Michael Judd, you're just doing such beautiful work. It's it's simple. It's part of the expression down to earth. It it uh, it's just got a nice what we say in Chinese a nice vibe. <laughs> I know that doesn't sound like Mandarin, but in another universe it is. <laughs> and, uh, it's just no, it really is. It's just a, it's very grounding. It's very useful. I brought up the implication uh, that has a kind of a, a larger sociological implication that uh, permaculture offers us, and um, in general and through your work in particular, uh, the opportunity to become um, self-reliant and self-sustaining outside of uh, reliance on big ag and uh, even just the um, local food store down the block. I mean, the idea of having a, an edible landscape and that that can even be done in urban environments, in in windows, in cities, and on patios and rooftops. It's all just the activation of the imagination, which I was speaking about at the very uh, opening of the show, and your work and that of the uh, larger permaculture community um, really exemplifies that kind of resourcefulness and creativity and I, I really think it's a, a real gift to a real gift to people on the planet so thanks for your good work agreed yes thank you very well said and, and I think a lot of people don't think that they have um, the understanding to begin doing it and it really is something that most of us have access to, uh, yes. whether it's in our own, own yes. space or a communal space or an abandoned lot. Uh, you know, there is an opportunity for us to begin becoming more independent, more resilient, and less less dependent on uh, the current food system. You know, the store down the street. Um, and, and, and it doesn't have to be that radical. You can just start and learn, and you know, do a little yeah. bit, get that experience. Step by step. And, That's right. And you'll be drawn. You'll be drawn. You'll be drawing in others with with a similar interest, and you'll be drawn to others doing similar things. And That's you'll right. begin to form and create some sort of community that really is one of the most important aspects of resilience. And the coming times and changes 
uh, yeah. the strength we need is is with community and with each other. Uh, it's not having this very productive landscape because <laughs> that'll get run over and you know overnight. Yeah. Everyone will tear it exactly. apart. But if you have community, you have a you have a strength there that will help see you through challenging times. Uh, so yeah, it kind of starts just get out there and scratching in the earth. Exactly. You could say changing the world, earthworm by earthworm and mushroom by mushroom. <laughs> it can be. It can be that simple. I think Jeff Lawton, <laughs> one of his what one of his quotes is, you know, all the problems in the world can be solved, you know, in the garden. Yes, yes, it's really true. It uh, reminds me of a quote of Buckminster Fuller's, which I'm uh, not getting completely right now. But basically, if you can't change yourself, change the environment that you inhabit, and that in turn will change you. <laughs> it will improve you. We have a whole lot more access, it seems, in general, to the world outside of us than to the world inside us. Now, many of us are trying to alter that, believe me, but um, in general, we're very outward-oriented. So a garden is yeah. a wonderful place to begin one's inner gardening. So, yes, Michael Judd, thank you. Yes, thank you. Absolutely. Your website for our uh, listening audience? Uh, our website is ecologiadesign.com. And we have a, a, a wealth of um, information and images there. Um, our book is on there. And upcoming, we are working on a new book, a new publication, uh, called A Guide to backyard mushroom growing and it is just that it is how do we begin uh, growing and working more with fungi in a fun simple way uh, in our our homes our apartments you know really just kind of showing how easy and fun it is and tons of benefits so that's that's going to come up soon. We're going to do a Kickstarter uh, for that starting uh, here next month, a couple of weeks. And, Beautiful. Yeah, hope to build some well, community around that as well. When it's done, we'll have you back. If not, great. Hey, I could talk. I can talk about fungi and mushrooms, you know, for hours. For a long so please, time. Please exactly. do. <laughs> oh yes, indeed, and they have many values that we're not going to go into now, but. Uh, Terence McKenna was certainly one of my teachers, and I've learned about some of the benefits of mushrooms that go body and mind, not to mention soul. So your words are well spoken, as are those of Paul Stamets and his mycelium running, and uh, we really have to take stock of what creates and what destroys the way the ancient Vedantic understanding taught us that both are part and parcel of the same organic process, and we need both in hand. So, um, uh, yes, yes. Um, yeah. If we have, do we have time? How much time do we have to speak? Is there a, just is there a limit? Or, oh, okay. I was just going to yeah. touch on the subject, um, please, that, that that you brought up. Uh, that cultures are born of their environments. Um, historically, you know, it was more obvious 
cultures that were born, you know, from the seaside, from the mountains, uh, you know, from the more arid areas. You know, they, they were, you know, they, they shaped the people, they shaped the culture. And these days, uh, you know, if we look at what's shaping our culture, uh, we see that it is reflecting on, you know, our landscape and mm-hmm. our usage of automobiles and cars and phones. And and if we want to shift our culture again, we need to change our landscape. You know, if we can't change yeah. ourselves, begin to shift and change our landscapes more. And in the process, we will be changing. But we will also mm-hmm. be creating an environment that creates strong roots for a new culture a culture that will be strong and resilient to the times that are coming. So I, I do believe in that wonderful saying by Buckminster Fuller, you know, that, you know, go out there and begin to shape our environment because it will shape us. Yeah. Um, and and that's, yeah. That's, that's absolutely what's needed. Yeah. It's a very good point. Very good point. So let's start shaping. <laughs> continue, continue. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Start, start with the earthworks. Start with exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Thanks again, Michael Judd. Such a pleasure to have you on and uh, to be continued. Yes, absolutely. I've enjoyed it. Thank you for having me. Me too. It's my pleasure. We'll talk soon. This is Mitchell J. Raven for A Better World. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. What a learning experience we had today on permaculture. Edible Landscaping with a Permaculture Twist by Michael Judd. Also remember to go to our website, abetterworld.tv. And if you're not on the newsletter just yet, please join us because we're doing a lot of great stuff here at A Better World, and we want your participation. So the best way to do that is getting on the newsletter. We have a lot of things going on at our website. Uh, Yes, a possibility to donate, which we always appreciate. Some of you wonderful souls are doing monthly donations that help us go and move forward and stay sustainable. Uh, We also have a whole part of our website about energy balancing, inner and outer energy, inner and outer ecology, as I like to discuss it. And uh, please know, we also have the listing of events of all sorts in the New York area and beyond, and we welcome you to participate in all these things we're doing. On September 13th, I want to let you know that a, a colleague and dear friend of mine, Kurt Johnson, has been spearheading an event that's going to be taking place that day, all day, on something called um, eco-ministry as well as on... Uh, Interfaith and Interspirituality, which is the theme of his latest book, really interesting, of cross-fertilization, talking about things like fertility, of different cultures and different forms of thinking and different ideas about Godhead, about theism, about non-theism, about duality, about non-duality, you name it. But even though it's going to be inside a church, it's going to be outside the box. So uh, I think any one of you who would like to know more, please get in touch with me at mjr at abetterworld.net, mjr at abetterworld.net. Not to mention that's the place to write to me to make comments on our shows and tell me what you want more of or less of, for that matter. 
And uh, I'll be giving a talk at that September 13th church. I think it's in uh, on Park Avenue, an amazing group of reverends just made it available to uh, a number of us. It's really a wonderful opportunity, very, very kind and generous. I'll be speaking about sacred stewardship, awakening the soul to action, which is really the uh, title of the book I'm working on, uh, which takes a while to manufacture because of uh, the limits on my time, but it is in process, and I will be giving some notion of that by the subjects of dealing with inner ecology and outer ecology and who we are relative to the planet and Gaia and uh, all as one part of a larger ecological living system and the kind of attitude of respect and gratitude that really actually helps the soil get more fertile. That's a whole other dimension that we didn't really touch upon much today. But I do want to say that our thoughts have a material substrate to them, and they actually have a form of nourishment to them, as does our love. And the way we express these through our attitude toward each other and toward the earth herself has, I believe, a measurable effect on her health and well-being as well simultaneously as our own. So these are some of the subjects as well as a more concrete expression of sustainability while we move into a renewable energy foundation away from fossil fuel and into wind, solar, hydro, geothermal, and the like. So please know that will be happening. I'll be speaking about that on September 13th. Also, last Another Michael, Dr. Michael Cotton, will be in New York. I interviewed Michael back in uh, March on the subject of higher brain living. I just returned from training in Chicago as an advanced facilitator. And this is really juicy stuff. It has to do with activating the prefrontal cortex by, by essentially helping to facilitate the growth of a certain kind of breath referred to as saludogenic, salut as in the French and the Latin and the Spanish and the Italian, meaning health. There's this type of breath that once engendered um, is a signal that the higher brain, the prefrontal cortex, is getting engaged. And this is a place where higher level creativity can and does take place and we've got a fair amount of data in neuroscience about this, and it helps to loop us back into our natural cycles because just like we were talking about earlier with Michael Judd about um, removing our own quote-unquote waste from the ecosystem, so too we have been short-circuiting our our planet with the lack of engagement of our higher neurological functions. Well, guess what? Look at the world now. <laughs> Look at the war. Look at the conflict. Look at the emphasis on plastics. Look at the destruction of our environment. All of these are functions of the reptilian brain, i.e., that the higher brain functions are not being engaged. And that means this is doing a disservice to our planet and to each other and to Gaia herself which is our real mother and our real home. So 
it's an interesting way to think that just as we remove our waste, if we've removed a good portion of our brain from activity, we're not serving the planet properly. So on that note, we have a lot of fun coming up here in New York at the uh, upcoming New Life Expo at the, uh, in the middle of October. Sure, I'll be giving a talk there about these kinds of things. So please make a point of joining me there. And uh, we'll be doing a couple of uh, demonstrations with Michael Cotton so you can see what it looks like when you engage this salutogenic breath and the body starts to really get turned on with the higher brain and by the higher brain. So with that said, I want to just thank you all again for joining me here at A Better World. And remember that Monday nights at 9 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time, I'm on Progressive Radio Network, Gary Knoll's station, probably the best listened to or certainly among them, um, online radio stations there is. And uh, my show there these days is Progressive Film Hour with Mitchell J. Rabin, yours truly. And each week, we feature a different film. Uh, what will be the next film? Ah, uh, Go to the newsletter, and you'll find out. Thanks again for joining, and I look forward to seeing you all next week.